Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed classic film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. It's Monday. This is Monday. Minute 136. It's Monday. Oh. Yes. And I, yeah. That, that, and that, that is the voice of Mr. Josh Horowitz. Let's get crazy. Yes, crazy Monday. It's crazy Monday, and instead of introducing myself first, which you thought I was going to do, right now cars are, are jamming on the brakes. They're like, what? What? I'm, I'm gonna, and you hear the voice of Mr. Josh Horowitz. Yes, but no, we, we must introduce the great Brett Stillo. Where is he? That would be me. I am Brett Stillo. Yes. yes. And, I'm here with, and I'm here with Josh Horowitz, fellow podcaster. Hello. You may remember us from, you know, we are, we are the Rebel Podcasters. We do the five-minute <laughs> The defiant five-minute podcasts. We wave yes. our yeah our five-minute formats in your face. That's right. We did Big Trouble in Little China. We did uh, Buckaroo Bonsai, and uh, we're also on another podcast. And that that's our segue into introducing our guest. The deuce you say. Who is our guest today, Josh? Well, we are on a podcast called Twelve Chimes It's Midnight, and so I am privileged to bring back to the microphone yet again. Miss Amy Pavi from 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Hello. Amy. Welcome. How are you doing? How's it going, guys? We're, going we're doing well. all right. Uh, yeah. Isolated, but but doing well, you know. It's played into my um, uh, my introvert nature, so uh, <laughs> so it hasn't been so bad for me anyway. No, no, that's that's good. I, though we, we haven't worked on a 12 Chimes in a while. We, we've we've got to give the audience what they want. Yes, I, I, I admit my, my muse has sailed with, uh, with being in, in public and being able to have people over. Because as you know, like the fun part about 12 Chimes is recording um, with everyone in the room. Yeah. And I know you're in LA, but we usually, you know, zoom you in. So you're right there in the action right. and we record in real time. And um, so not having that uh, has kind of stymied things. Um, but Josh, I got to say, I'm excited about the new draft. Oh, you've, you've had a chance to read it, have you? I have. Mm, it's really fun. Cool. So we will talk. We will talk. Nice. But, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to rewatch um, Best Years of Our Lives. I don't think I've seen it um, probably since I was in film school. Aha, uh-huh, film oh, school. Okay. And uh, yeah, you know, and it, cause it was a good example of non-actor and I know that this is this is minute one thirty six, so that's probably been Homer's been talked about quite a bit. <laughs> no, but, um, but please talk. Please talk. Give us your thoughts on Homer and Al and and Fred and your and on the movie. But mm-hmm. uh, do you like it? Is it okay? <laughs> I do. I think it's. I think it's a pretty flawless film. Um, my memory of it was that it was very depressing. So mm. when you and originally brought this whole thing up, I was a little apprehensive because I've been kind of um, watching a lot of fun movies um, just to, you know, keep my, keep my sanity. And so when I thought about rewatching this, I'm like, Oh my God, it's like two, almost three hours and it's super depressing. Hmm. And, and I mentioned that to, to my partner, Gavin, and he said, Oh no, it's, it's really inspiring. And I thought, Oh, okay, well, okay, I'll give it a go. And, uh, so I watched it in two segments because I was I didn't want to commit the whole three hours or however long it is because mm-hmm. it's it's 
I was kind of waiting to be depressed, but it, it again was a, a pretty fun, inspiring, interesting movie. And all the characters are really compelling. And again, I was reminded like how good the direction is. Um, and yeah, cause you know, recently I saw a film with actors I really liked and their performances were terrible. And it reminds you how much the director really does contribute hmm. to a performance and how much they must've, uh, he and I and I apologize. I can't remember the actor that plays Homer, um, but they, you know, must have worked together really closely. And I know I've read some articles that say that the uh, other actors worked really hard to support him and and help him, um, act, you know, with his acting. And uh, and I have to say, the minute before this, I think it's one thirty five, um, the moment where he says hi. <laughs> to the stranger sitting at the counter is just so touching. There's just something that epitomizes that character mm. in his direct look at the stranger and his open expression and his hello oh. of that willingness to just talk to anybody and his ability to find humor in a situation and have uh, kind of a good, Mostly good mental outlook. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> he struggles. With William Wilder certainly, uh, I believe, he handpicked, uh, you know, the, the the actor who played, uh, you know, our, you know, our, um, Homer, and you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that he he must have worked very closely with him after he was hired, uh, but but that does leave me with uh, an interesting question. This is something uh, my daughter Ilana was asking just the other day because we were. We were watching a film, and, and she was asking me, what, what is it that a director really does in a film? I mean, how much is it is, does the director have an impact on what we see on the screen in the end? I mean, I, I tried to explain that the director is, is very much involved in the casting and, and the choosing of the people who will shoot the film and, you know, how things are, are kind of laid out. But how, what would you say uh, is a director's role? And what do you think William Wilder, Wilder's role was this, you know, from, from watching this? I don't know, Brett, do you want to talk about that? Funny you should mention that because <laughs> uh, I, I just, hours ago, had an experience that can help define what a bad director is. Ah, what did as you see? You, as you folks know, I, I uh, do videography and filmmaking. Ah. And uh, I will not elaborate or elaborate. I will not elaborate or elaborate. I will not name names. I will not point fingers. <laughs> but I was, I have been working with someone who has a concept of a director as a visionary field marshal, a great legend, someone who stands on a hill and, and looks at the vista and says, this is, we must have more clouds. You know, there is... That's Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah, yeah. There, there is an element of the visionary director, the one, the person who sees something that isn't there, you know, an the, alchemist. The megaphones and the jodhpurs, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I... Yeah. That, that element is there. Um, but I think, to me, a director is a very good manager a script mm -hmm. manager, a story manager. And that's what's the key with working with the actors is you're doing a scene, you know, and someone just takes a different approach or they get sort of off what the scene is about. And, you know, you just, you direct, you say, you know, that's nice, but 
uh, why would you suddenly keep people on point? Keep people on point, exactly. Right. And uh, and you know, you, you two join in because you you have uh, directed people in your own ways, um, and you've been in front of the camera or the microphone and behind. So I think it I think it applies in in film and theater, in audio, uh, in basketball. You, you don't you don't hmm. coach basketball team. You direct a basketball team. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and and keeping people on point in terms of the the tone as well, right? So if if your tone is kind of over the top or the tone is realistic or the tone is you know like a conductor is keeping everybody in harmony, so making sure one actor isn't going off the rails mm. uh and is keeping the tone of the piece and um working with the theme the themes, right? So if if your theme is uh, you know, intense, you don't want one person going off and doing comedy, mm-hmm. um, unless that's appropriate for this, of course. Uh, but it is interesting, I think, for Alana, my my favorite things is is kind of seeing two different two different examples, like an example of an actor who's great in a film and an, and an example of that same actor in another film who's terrible. Mm-hmm. And it helps you kind of analyze like, well, what what was it that made them good in this film and bad in this film? Um, and one of my favorites, actually, okay, now I'm kind of getting off topic a little That's bit. Okay. Maybe you can edit this out, is um, Dangerous Liaisons. Mm. So there's uh, a Stephen Frears version and a, a Milos Forman version. And I thought the Milos Forman version, just the pacing was terrible and I didn't like the acting and I thought it was really inconsistent, but the Frears is like on point and super sharp and compelling. And seeing those two movies back to back, I think, can tell you a lot about filmmaking huh. and Milos Forman is a, an amazing filmmaker. So it, it also makes you think about how it's just such a, a lucky combination of director and producer and actors and, you know, just everything just kind of falls into place. And I think, you know, a lot of filmmakers who are really consistent, like William Wyler, he must have a particular, like you're saying, he's a good manager. He has a good way of, or a consistent way of working with people. Hmm. Um, because I, if I'm not mistaken, he directed How to Steal a Million, um, which we just watched, and it was amazing. And I might be getting that mixed up with Charade or Charade. Charade. No, uh, and Charade was mm. uh, Stanley Don. And we were, Schmod. We're, Schmod. we're in Audrey Hepburn <laughs> land, where I, I, I shout out to our fellow Movie by Minute podcasters. Have any of you, any of you, done a movie by a minute featuring the great Audrey Hepburn and why not mm. Ooh. I want to do a wait until dark well, I wonder if somebody's done breakfast at Tiffany's that's uh, yeah I they mean, must have <laughs> let's start now I'm looking for that <laughs> if somebody yeah <laughs> now's do the that right now so okay but but wait uh, we, we have to come back to our our yeah, own we, one yeah. here yeah like, a segue back segue back because yeah I think uh, yeah, Weiler. Uh, again, I think I think it's uh, I think Weiler does have a vision here. That that is a factor, and uh, but I think it's it's he wants to stay true to the story that we're telling that he's telling. It's a story that's that's near and dear to him as a a veteran in his own way of the war. He he has a story mm-hmm. to tell and a mission, and I think here in this minute is. Uh, a very important minute for Weiler to kind of set some things straight and to kind of look at the world of 1946 in America and the world 
and uh, make a few things clear to some people who might not get it. Because this minute, in particular, mm. starts with that that dark-suited, enigmatic figure, Mr. Mollet, uh, questioning Homer's Mollet. sacrifice during the war. Mollet. Yeah, let's try that again. The dark-suited Mollet, questioning Homer's sacrifice. Mollet, yes. Mollet, and ends with the same angry Mollet uh, leaving and uh, while paying his check and, and being just just a real Mollet. Yeah, that's what he is. He's a Mollet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, this this is a a good minute. I mean, this is this is the one where we're starting to, uh, you know, really, I, I guess, feel for Homer, who went through all this sacrifice and is kind of questioning his sacrifice, and and here he faces somebody who is a real, real character, and and he's explaining to himself, uh, what was not a very popular position. Though I think uh, these days some people might think it was a more popular position than it really was, you know, that, that of isolationism. You know, Homer, Homer is questioning his sacrifice, and here he's presented very, you know, you could say conveniently, but it's, mm-hmm. it's good for the story. He's presented with someone with a very extreme yeah. view of what it, he's thinking in his head. So it's almost like a, an opportunity for him to think in an extreme and be like, oh, okay, I guess I don't believe in that you know and it's an opportunity for him to kind of think about the 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 questions he has in his head because certainly i could see isolationism before the war but with mollet's character you know this is after the fact when people know a lot more about why we got into the war and what the war was about and what it was being fought for and so to have those views after the fact is definitely more extreme, yeah. for sure. And, and chutzpah, because of who he's talking to right here, but I, I guess that Mollet really feels like he needs to to, to bring this point to him. Uh, but but here's an interesting thing. So I just recently saw the, the Trial of the Chicago 7 film with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and, and a great cast, a really good movie. Uh, hmm. But as we were watching this, um, I was just trying to think, well, okay, this was 68 what percentage of people at that time opposed the Vietnam War? And just, just thinking mm-hmm. of it off the top of my head, I kind of figured that, well, the, the, the new generation, the people that were actually being sent over to the war probably opposed it. And the people who fought in World War II and had more of a sense of, you know, duty and, you know, an older generation were probably more in favor of it. And sure enough, uh, I, I looked up, there was some sort of a Gallup poll uh, done in 68, 69. Yeah, it was about half and half of people who supported the war versus mm-hmm. who didn't. But that kind of ties into here. Here we have this isolationist. Uh, but what what percentage of people, I guess, during World War II fell into that isolationist camp? And then at what point did it kind of sway where more people were, were in favor of it? So I, I did look this one up, and I've got some, some uh, quick stats that I just want to share for everybody. Uh, so what percentage of Americans during World War II did not support the U.S.'s entry? It... Uh, Apparently, there was a, an article that was done in the Stars and Stripes uh, back in 2019. There was a YouGov survey on the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. And so this is in 2019. 66% of the responders felt that the U.S. entry after Pearl Harbor was completely or somewhat justified. So basically today, uh, two-thirds of Americans feel that, yes, it was a good thing for us being in, in World War II. But then if you look back uh, to some of the polls that were done... Uh, during the 1940s, 
Like I saw something that was a bunch of Gallup polls from September 39 to December 41. So if you look back to September of 39, it was about 50%. 48% people thought that the U.S. should not get involved in Europe, and 42% said they should. And, and surprisingly, after Poland was conquered, just a couple of months after that, uh, do you think the number went up or down? Yeah, it's hard to say because on one hand, people might be more afraid to enter the war with the, seeing the strength of Germany, but maybe they would be more inclined. So it, I don't it know. Is, I, I, can't, I, I know I read yeah. your stats. No, 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 but it, it is actually, yeah, more people were afraid at that point. Now 71% of people didn't want to get involved. It was yeah. only, actually, no, and then by May of 1940, when Germany invaded Netherlands, Belgium, France, now 93% of opposed getting involved in America. It wasn't yeah. until France well, fell in June of 1940 when the numbers started turning around. At that point, 61% mm. wanted to keep out of the war. And when the draft was started in September of 1940, now 52% were in favor of helping England versus staying out of the war. And then obviously after Pearl Harbor, then now it was like 91%. So, right. It certainly wasn't unanimous, no, that's for no. sure. That does also, I think, put light into... Mollet's hmm. anti-British statements. Yeah, that you know, I think you did have that element who of Americans who thought, oh, this is, yeah, the limeys. Hmm. They're trying to trick us. You know, this is it's the War of eighteen twelve. Well, over and, remember, it wasn't too and, long uh, since World War One, and so there was an interesting article I read by, by conservative Pat Buchanan from two thousand four, and he said. Um, for 20 years after World War One, Americans felt we had been had by the Brits huh. and had been suckered into war. Um, and then to quote his article, only to pull England's chestnuts out of the fire, uh -huh. unquote. Um, yeah. This sentiment fueled the greatest of all anti-war movements in U.S. history, America First. Mm. So it sounded like there was some anti-British. I mean, for, you know, being being someone today, thinking back, you're like, who would be who would prejudice against Britain, you know? But then you think, well, I mean, World War One was pretty, pretty horrific, yeah. and it hadn't been that many years since then. And a lot of Americans did feel like, you know, the problems in Europe had been broiling for a thousand years or hundreds of years, and why the hell would we want to get involved <laughs> in this, you know, age-old, age-old disputes and age-old bickering between? you know, countries in yeah, Europe. And America First had um, some pretty big names backing it too. I mean, Charles Lindbergh, the famous flyer, he was their biggest proponent of America First. And a lot of people knew him and were probably influenced by what he had to say. Yeah, there's an interesting pamphlet that's uh, available from um, archive.org by the co-founder of America First. And it talks a lot about um, uh, Roosevelt's you know, you know, the whole conspiracy about uh, Pearl Harbor and all the things that Roosevelt mm -hmm. did to provoke Japan. Um, and that essentially he makes the case that uh, America and Roosevelt had essentially declared war on Japan without the consent of, of Congress. Um, there was different sanctions and um, there were a lot of talks with Japan to end the sanctions and to have a peaceful outcome mm -hmm. And America dragged their feet or, you know, so the 
so the American first evidence uh, hmm. says, um, and that they just further provoked them and, and put them uh, in a bad position. And, uh, but even, even that writer said, you know, in all honesty that uh, he didn't think Roosevelt w- could have predicted the, the Pearl Harbor attack and how many people, you know, died in that and how vicious Well, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting thing actually having to do with just the wording of, of how the war was declared at that time. I, I read this book called Presidents at mm. War, and they talk about the fact that uh, Roosevelt doesn't say a state of war, you know, you know, we declare war. A state of war now exists between the U.S. and, or, or, or no, it has existed. That That's the thing. He's declaring that a state of war has oh. existed between the United States and the Empire of Japan. And just that, the way that they worded it, it, it was like being very careful. Uh, I, I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember the details about why that was. Uh, but but there was something significant there. But still, it implies that there had been plenty of tensions. Yeah, the, the tensions prior. already existed. And, you know, this this is not new. Yeah. But but back to your point, which was really interesting, because I was I was thinking of Mollet um, and his interaction with Homer um, more as the the film and the story's opportunity to show yet another challenge that these three men had to to deal with when they came back mm-hmm. is not just all the obvious problems, but but also the fact that you know there was a big um, percentage of people or a, or a significant percentage of people that were. Um, against mm-hmm. the war. Um, but of course they do make Mullet very extreme mm-hmm. in the fact that, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, that the fact that it's after the fact, so we already know why we were in the war and he's still against it. And he's also, the thing that struck me about Mullet at first was that he wasn't overly passionate. He wasn't angry right at the start. He was very patronizing. Mm-hmm. You know, he had that idea of like, oh, well, you know, you made your sacrifice and it wasn't worth it. And just read the facts, just, just read mm-hmm. the facts, you know, very patronizing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth, but then there's a point where he says a sentence that I think kind of does sum up the fact that it's, it, that his beliefs go beyond just isolationism. And when he says we fought the wrong people, that's mm-hmm. all. So you're thinking, so it's not against the war necessarily, but that he didn't believe we should have been on the side of the allies, perhaps, which seems like a fairly radical idea. Yeah. Well, this is 1946. This is the mm-hmm. rise of the Cold War. And, you know, there is that sense that, uh, you know, one of our allies yes. is now one of our rivals. You have the, the Eastern blocks. I mean, you know, I'm I'm putting on a fake mustache and a big fedora, and uh, I, I, I'm doing my mullet impersonation. But you know, you you do. I think yeah. You know, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know, I do see. You know, there is a point here that in the America of 1946, uh, things around the mm-hmm. world are still very tense, and in a couple of years, we're going to have the Berlin airlift. And, you know, I mean, for all the, for that matter, Europe is in ruins and we're looking at potential communist insurgencies. And, uh, you know, there's a sense that uh, things are far from mm-hmm. settled. And I think you're getting that ripple effect here. Uh, but again, you know, I think you, 
Uh, Amy, you made a good point. Like, Mollet is an extreme voice in that argument. And uh, I think it's interesting here, uh, choices that Weiler makes and Greg Tolan makes. You know, it's it's a real simple setup. It's it's two Tolan guys being talking the cinematographer, at a counter, right? but you notice... Yeah, uh, hmm. yeah Tolan, the cinematographer. Uh, Mollet is huge. Oh, you know, okay. Homer's sort of, you know, you see Homer yeah. clearly, uh, you know, he's sort of a medium shot, but there's this hulking, gigantic mullet with his back to the camera, sort of, you know, threatening Homer. And then we have, in this scene, we have this, you know, huge close-up, an extreme, extreme close-up of mullet. You can, you can count the bristles and his mustache, and you see his American flag pin, and his somewhat messed up teeth. And, uh, yeah, that's a good point because of course I saw it on a TV. I, I've never seen this film in the theater, but yeah, that's a good point. Cause you think about how large he loomed and his opinion loomed on the big screen. Mm. Like, and that, so that is really interesting because not only is he looming over and kind of in a threatening position to Homer, but he's kind of in our face, right? He's, so there's an in he's, he's definitely yeah, very much. Like yeah. in your comfort zone, you know, in your personal space. So a there's bit. an interesting thing here is that he's actually outnumbered because not only is Homer, you know, the person he's talking to was in the service, but unbeknownst to him, the, uh, you know, the soda jerk was also a member of the service and he doesn't like what, uh, what Mollet is saying. Right. Uh, and, and I think there, but, there is a point I think in, in here where, you actually see this this moment where maybe Mollet feels a little bit nervous. Like if you look around about forty two seconds yeah. in this thing, watch his hand. His his hand is shaking when he's got that water glass and he's asked to pay and leave. Right. Well, I, I was hearing that too. Was that um, you know in this day and age when we have uh, you know message boards and and the internet and all that? I mean, back then you didn't have that kind of thing to find your your like minded people. So you kind of maybe had to you know step out of your comfort zone to talk about hmm. it at all with anybody no. um and so but but certainly he had to be extreme enough to to warrant what happens later um but i but to to Brett's point about kind of the the way the shot set up uh although Fred is there and Fred is yet another dissenting um voice the shot is not a three shot hmm. right it's a two shot, just, it just isolating Homer and, and Mollet and Fred is not involved until later. And in, and until we get the three shot, I, you know, after, after our mm -hmm. minute, um, like it doesn't even go to a three shot. It, it isolates Fred in a shot and then goes to the, finally goes to the three shot, but it, this whole exchange is really isolated to Homer and, um, and to Mollet. And I hadn't thought about the fact that he's looming, you know, right up mm. front. That's a really interesting, interesting point. Mm. Nice one, Brett. Yeah, you almost, the way it's framed, <laughs> oh, I, I have my moments, so that's it for me. I'm out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the way it's framed, Homer is really isolated. He's almost, you know, he is literally back against to the, the wall. wall. Yeah. And uh, what's really tragic is there's no way, it's back to the wall, there's no way he can enjoy that Sunday. 
Oh. You know, it's it's like he it's the the, the saddest oh. thing in the mo in the movies. He at the end after Mollet leaves and he he kind of yeah. he kind of drops his spoon the in the sundae like ah this tastes I'm not gonna enjoy this now. Oh. It's the saddest Sunday. Yeah, you you can't really enjoy uh, an ice cream treat after uh, that kind of confrontation no. for sure. <laughs> uh, he's he's too wound up and uh, and yeah, just to add to it. Uh, Mollet is portrayed through, you know, his two or three minutes on screen. He's, he is a completely abrasive, condescending character. If perhaps you might hear Mollet and say, well, yeah, gosh, he has a point. But then, you know, to Fred, he has that line about uh, every soda jerk in the country's mm. got an idea that he's somebody. And it's like, well, yeah, he is somebody. He's a decorated bombardier. <laughs> So go pay for your sandwich. And who has a ham sandwich and water? I think that if if anything, it tells me this guy is so cheap he wouldn't buy a cup of coffee or a glass of milk. I'll just mm. I'll just have a ham and cheese. Yeah, sandwich. he wouldn't be the kind of involved in an ice cream sundae. Mm. Would would we feel differently about Mollet if he had also ordered an ice cream sundae? <laughs> <laughs> That I I would have to dig more into the symbolism of that if he had indeed done that. <laughs> Mollet definitely is going to get his in the minutes uh, coming up, uh, and uh, we spoilers. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to see what happens with that one. <laughs> but that uh, that does pretty much wrap up this minute. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Amy, thank you for coming on and for for sharing all your yeah, all your course. thoughts on this. Uh, uh, let's yeah it was really interesting thanks for giving me the opportunity to kind of revisit this film and kind of poke into the history a little more anyway before we go uh anything uh, you're working on anything you want to tell us a little bit more about 12 uh, so uh i've tried to keep in the mix a little bit i released little little things for halloween and for christmas um that were just kind of personal little stories um so i'm kind of keeping in keeping my hand in it um, but like I said, Josh's script is really interesting. I got another script from a friend, Ryan, um, who was in, uh, an episode a while ago as the, the evil murderer who get, <laughs> who gets offed by the cat. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, people have asked, uh, you know, are there more stories coming? And I, I have not stopped the podcast, uh, even though we paused, um, I do really love, and I know you guys do too, because you've contributed so much um, and so many stories. Um, it's it's just a really fun way to tell stories. And and where can uh, people find out about 12 Chimes It's Midnight? 12chimesradio.com is where you can find out more, but uh, the show is also featured on almost every podcast app uh, on Spotify and Stitcher and TuneIn and you can find it just about anywhere. Remember, friends, audio drama is the only drama. And meanwhile, uh, you can find us, the Best Minutes Podcasts, on the usual locations, the Apple Podcasts, the Spotify, the Google That Plays, or at our main site, thebestminutes.com. Social media is also available at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listener's Cafe, hosted by Mr. Hoagie Carmichael. Uh, and you can find that on Facebook and on Twitter at simply The Best Minutes. So please join us here tomorrow 
for minute 137 of the best minute where we will discuss <laughs> candy glass. See you next time. <laughs> candy glass. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.